Good morning. As was announced, there is a uh, young adult retreat. Uh, you know, I, I know that it's unlikely. I know a lot of people work and are busy, uh, so it might be a little difficult, but I thought I would just go ahead and announce it, throw it out there, because Michaela and I will be attending that. It's the camp that we've been connected with for a long time. As I mentioned, the camp that we actually met at for the first time when we were 12, uh, and then we started dating in high school. So, yeah, it's special to us, and it's really not that bad. I, I said it's around Houston, but it's not that bad. You know, you think of Houston, but it's not Houston proper. It's in a nice location with some big old oak trees, so it's, it's a nice little piece of property. So if you're not sold on anything else, uh, maybe you would enjoy where it's at. But regardless, uh, one more thing that I do need to announce is that uh, this coming Saturday, uh, Saturday the 14th, there is the Fish Fry Fellowship of sorts uh, at Ben Lomond. Uh, the community center in Ben Lomond, which I, I put a pin because I didn't know where it was. Drew showed me where it was, and so I pinned it. It was kind of difficult for me to figure out where we were. I don't know about y'all. Y'all are probably obviously more familiar with this location. But Ben Lomond Community Center, this coming Saturday, at starting at 4.30, it is donation-based, so don't be cheap. Uh, you know, be kind. <laughs> anyway, all that being said, I think that's all I need to announce um, So let's pray before we get into the sermon. God, you are good and you alone are good. We are thankful for your son who died for us, uh, who cleanses us, who makes us a body. We pray that we would be in a, a loving, peaceful fellowship with each other, that we would be representing you and that others would know that you are God because they see us, they see our love, they see the fellowship we have because of Christ It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, our little quick recap from last week. We talked about the question, what results from pain? We saw that God may be glorified through pain, and because of what Jesus does in spite of our pain, people will come to belief in him. Now, last week I intentionally made the title, What Results From Pain, and not What Results Because of Pain, because pain does not cause his glory or our belief. It is God's work. God's work in pain results in his glory and our belief. And one thought I wanted to revisit shortly is just that God allows us to go through pain. There are going to be times in your life where you are hurting. There are going to be times in your life where you are suffering and will absolutely be within God's ability to relieve you of that pain, to take away your suffering, but he won't. At least not immediately. So what do we do with that? Again, I offer one way to think about it is that God, while he might not act immediately in the moment he has done something, there will come a day where there will be no more pain. There will come a day where God will wipe away every single tear because of the work of Christ. And one thing we're going to see in our text today, John chapter 11, verses 28 through 44, is that God is not detached from our pain. God fuels our pain. He mourns with us. So God has certainly done something about our pain. He's done something because of the work of Jesus Christ. But not only has he done something, he is with us in pain. So John chapter 11. 
John chapter 11, we're going to pick up where we left off. By the way, that little picture at the very beginning of the slides, that's just a third century catacomb painting of representing Jesus raising Lazarus. Sometimes I pick those paintings out just because they're interesting to me, just so we can have some explanation. I didn't just pick something random. But that's Jesus raising Lazarus as depicted in the third century. But John chapter 11, John chapter 11, verses 25 through 27, where we left off last week. Jesus said to her, that is Martha, he said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And then we continue on with our text today, verses 28 through 30. When he he had said this, when she had said this, rather, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. Now, we've got to remember, Mary, Martha, uh, the Jews that are there trying to console them, they're all together. And then Martha hears that Jesus is on his way, he's coming, and so Martha goes to meet him. And based on the context, it kind of seems like Mary just didn't hear that Jesus was coming. Perhaps she's just so overwhelmed, she can't, she's not aware of what's going on around her. I'm sure some of you might be able to identify with this. When you're in pain, sometimes you just don't know what's going on around you. And so Martha then goes to her sister. She tells her in private, perhaps drawing her away from the crowd, drawing her away from all the noise and saying, hey, look, Jesus is here. He's calling for you. And then when Mary finally realizes this, she goes quickly to Christ. We continue in verse 31. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now in our text from last week and this week, we see a contrast between Jesus and the Jews, right? Twice in this text, the Jews are said to be consoling Mary and Martha, meaning they're trying to encourage them, they're trying to comfort them, right? That's what they offer. Now to a certain extent, obviously Jesus offers some comfort, but Jesus offers more. Right? All they can offer, all the Jews can offer, is they just sit there, be present with them, and try to console them, try to comfort them. But Jesus offers them more. He offers eternal life. He offers a true expectation for something better. As we read in verses 25 and 26, what he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Right, so Jesus, he always offers something better. But when it comes to a time when you're, you're maybe trying to console someone, you're trying to be present with them in their grief, we got to remember that Jesus always offers something better than we could ever. He offers a true expectation of life, of relief from pain, of eternal life. Verse 32, chapter 11. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In this text, there's also another contrast between what, how, how Mary responds and how Martha responds. Martha, even though she's in pain, she, she's composed. Or she's focused. Mary, she's in pain. And it seems she's torn up, maybe a bit hysterical. And she's focused. Right, but she's hyper-focused. She's hyper-focused on the fact that her brother could still be here. Right, Jesus, if you had been here, you could have healed him. You could have, you could have been okay. You wouldn't have died, Jesus, if you had been here. Now, I don't think she's necessarily blaming Jesus. 
I think she's just so focused on the fact that things could have been otherwise. That's what she sees. She doesn't see anything else outside of that. It could have been otherwise. Her brother could still be here. Take a look how Jesus responds. This is very eye-opening here. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. I notice in this text that Jesus, he doesn't criticize her. He doesn't say, Mary, you should have more faith. He doesn't say, you know what, your feelings are invalid. He doesn't reprimand her. Jesus relates to her. In fact, he sees the Jews and Mary. Keep in mind that some of these Jews might have been previously in, in chapter 10. They might have been some of the ones who were wanting to stone him. And so Jesus sees them and Mary. They're weeping, and he weeps with them. He's deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Uh, that, that language there seems to communicate gut-wrenching feelings. It's a deep ache in one's spirit. Jesus does not invalidate. In fact, he feels what they feel. So you want a simple application? When you encounter somebody who's going through pain, don't try to reason it away. Don't try to invalidate them. Don't try to say, you know, here, here's the silver lining. You feel what they feel. You mourn with them. Sometimes people get blinded by, by, by their pain and they're so hyper-focused, maybe like Mary. But that doesn't mean we need to criticize them. Jesus does not criticize her. Jesus knows what she is going through. He knows her pain and he feels her pain. Verses 34 through 35. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Now, in our English translation, verse 35 might be the shortest verse in the English, but just a fun fact, the shortest verse in the Greek is actually 1 Thessalonians 5.16, which says, rejoice always. So it's a little bit interesting that it's completely the opposite of what we're dealing with here, but that's not really an important piece of information, just a fun fact. But the reality is, in our text, there's not rejoicing. Jesus wept. And the tense of the word in the Greek is simple past. It's not, it doesn't make clear how long he wept. He could have been weeping from verses 33 to 44. Jesus could have been weeping when he called Lazarus out of the tomb. The duration of his weeping is not clear, but the duration is not as important as the fact that he did. Right? Jesus, he displays both inwardly and outwardly that he mourns with them. He feels their pain. Again, another practical application, how about you cry sometimes, right? If you're like me, I used to be this kind of person who would always stuff my feelings, not allow myself to cry, but I think there is obviously a need. Our Savior, the one who is above all, somebody who doesn't really need to prove anything, he's over here broken, Outwardly and even maybe inwardly, and he's crying. If Jesus is above all, he doesn't need to prove anything to anyone, and he's over here crying, what does that say about us? 
When we're encountering somebody who is dealing with grief and pain, man, maybe we should cry with them. Maybe we're just that numb. Verses 36 through 37. So the Jews said, see how, you, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he open the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Right, so some of them present, they're, they're moved by his display of emotion, but some of them, they're a little disappointed. They're uh, upset that he did not keep Lazarus from dying. I think the question is kind of like, hey, if he could keep the, this man, if he could give this man sight, then why couldn't he keep this man from dying? They think that he hasn't done anything or that he's not going to do anything here. Of course, Jesus is about to do something. He is about to do a miracle. And as we talked about last week, what he does is to glorify God and to bring others to belief. But that's what Jesus wants. Jesus wants to glorify God and he wants to bring people to belief. That is love. But think about this. He wants something greater for you than just sustained fleshly life. Because out of a belief, guess what we have? Guess what we have in verses 25 and 26? I am the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus wants something greater for you than just sustained fleshly life. He wants you to have eternal, sanctified, perfected, and true life in him. That's love. Verse 38. Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. You've got to remember from last week, it seems that the, they, they came when he was dead in the tomb for four days. That was because the journey would more than likely have taken four days. So Jesus, he hears that Lazarus is sick. He waits two days. Then they go. They arrive when he has been in the tomb for four days. Now, if Jesus hadn't waited, he had, didn't wait. If Jesus didn't wait, and if he left when he heard that Lazarus was ill... Lazarus still would have died in the middle of their journey and they would have arrived when he was two days dead in the tomb. Now there's a difference between somebody being dead two days and somebody being dead four days. Right? He's in the tomb for four days, wrapped in linen, not to mention the cave, this tomb is sealed by a stone. The implication is there no, there's no way he's not dead. These details highlight that he is in fact dead and that Jesus did in fact raise him from the dead. This cannot be written off as an accident. Oh, he was really alive in the tomb. No, he is actually dead in the tomb. These details highlight this is a bona fide miracle only explainable by the power of God. Martha even says in verse 39, Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead for days. She knows. There's no question. He's rotting in the tomb. Jesus responds in verse 40. He said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? This seems to be referring to what Jesus said to her in verses 25 and 26. And if you notice, those two verses there are the most central to this text, to understanding this text. Again, I'm going to read it again. I am the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? You'll see the glory of God. This implies that being raised by Jesus displays God's glory. 
resurrection glorifies God. And Jesus is the resurrection, so ultimately Jesus glorifies God. But I want you to notice this. When we think about God's glory, when we think about Jesus being about the business of glorifying God while also being God, sometimes people think to themselves, wow, that kind of sounds egotistical, kind of seems self-centered. God's just concerned about his glory. You know, that, that seems kind of selfish. But here's the thing. God's glory is a blessing to us. God glorifying himself is not that the detriment of his, his people. No, his glory blesses us. Part of that is resurrection. Resurrection glorifies God. And resurrection's a blessing to us. Verse 41 and 42. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes, and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Right? What he says, what he does, is to bring people to belief. This is not some ego trip. This is not Jesus saying, hey, look at me, I'm about to do something cool. No, this is Jesus being concerned about the glory of God and bringing people to belief. Verses 30, or 43 and 44. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, and I recommend those with hearing aids to uh, turn them down a bit. He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now, if we are honest, we probably all have been afraid of death at one point in our life. There are a whole lot of people who are afraid of death. The thing is, we can't stop it. Sure, we try to prevent it in all sorts of ways. Cosmetics, even changing our DNA. There's even study into transferring human consciousness from your brain to a robot or some kind of AI. People try all sorts of ways to prevent death. Uh, Some people want to have eternal life by their own power. Some people want to uh, have immortality by their own power, thinking that if we can just transfer our human consciousness to something that doesn't decay, then hey, we're good. That sounds a whole lot like the original sin to me. Trying to be like God by your own power. Where's the line in that, huh? Like, I understand to a certain extent, we have treatments, we have technology, we got good research that can sustain somebody's life and is good. But at what point does it become an attempt to save yourself? At what point does it become, I'm looking to myself and not to God? But when all is said and done, when this age comes to an end, when Jesus returns, there's only one person. There's only one person who can raise our bodies from dust. For those in Christ, we'll be raised to a glorified body as he was. Romans chapter 6. This is something I referenced in class. Romans chapter 6, verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, 
just as, two very important words, just as Christ, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We're not talking about just some spiritual resurrection. We're talking about a glorified resurrection in body, perfected in spirit. Just as Christ, who the disciples could touch and feel. Resurrection is not just some spiritual bodies floating around. Jesus has done something about our pain and our death. And that something means resurrection. Not some pseudo-resurrection. Not some pseudo-resurrection where we're not raised in a glorified body. But an actual resurrection when we are raised in glorified bodies just as he was. Here's a question for you. Was Lazarus raised in a glorified body? No, I don't think so. Christ is the first fruits, meaning the first in kind of a glorified resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. But the thing is, Lazarus has to die again, did die again. Yet Lazarus will be raised again. He was a shadow of what is to come. Out of his illness, out of his death, God was glorified. Out of his illness and out of his death, people come to belief. His pain, their pain, was not in vain. God brought about something through their pain. See, not only does Christ do something for them, not only does Christ do something for us in our pain, he feels pain with us. Jesus knows what you feel. He does not leave you in your pain. He mourns with you. And someday you'll be raised with him. If you wish, you can be raised to newness of life as we stand and sing.